Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, if there is anything said from this pulpit that is not according to your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there is anything said that is according to your will, let it be heard as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing we might believe, and believing obey. Amen. I have a friend who is a hard negotiator. And years ago, he wanted desperately to buy a piece of real estate, a farmhouse with some land. But he thought that the price was too high and that improvements needed to be made and the improvements needed to be paid for by the seller, not the buyer. He really wanted the farm, but was confident he could negotiate a better deal. Weeks later, I asked him how the negotiations had gone. It worked out, he said. We met in the middle. He had this sheepish look when he said it, and we're good enough friends that I could get by with saying what I said next. She got everything she wanted, didn't she? (laughs) Pretty much, he said. It turned out that the middle ground was the ground that she was standing on. By not moving, she won. By not moving, Jeremiah lost. Jeremiah's career as a prophet spans over half a century. He never wavers from his message, which is that the nation of Judah has lost its way. They chase after false gods, he says. And he's not really saying that Israel's elites are not on Team Yahweh, as if religious affiliation were the end-all and be-all. I mean, they profess faith in Yahweh, though sometimes they call on Baal as backup, but that's not really the problem. What's really the problem is that their hearts, are captured by greed and a lust for power. Jeremiah also criticizes religious elites, priests and prophets who curry favor with the powerful by telling them what they want to hear. All is good, the court prophets say to the king, when really so much is wrong. Jeremiah never wavers and never wins. You'll see from a bulletin note that the great biblical historian John Bright said that by worldly standards, Jeremiah's career could only be judged a failure. As a true prophet, he is a voice of moral accountability for Israel, but he fails to persuade those who can change the course of the nation toward ruin, internal rot, and ultimate exile. In all his career, he remains a fringe figure which makes him an easy target for ridicule and abuse. We can find in the book of Jeremiah this sad scene of him on his knees pleading with God to come to his defense, only to have God answer his prayer by saying that the abuse is only going to get worse. And yet Jeremiah's words are so powerful. 
His poetic imagination so vivid and the courage of his life so admirable that his writings are preserved. A failure while alive, the witness of his writings help keep exiles together, help them survive and later thrive as a people of worship even without a nation. And his words through generations have kept others, pulled others back from their own moral exile. Today, Jeremiah is honored by many scholars as perhaps the most influential prophet of the Hebrew Bible. Will we listen now to words that were not heeded when they first were spoken? Listen for the word of the Lord in the reading of Jeremiah 2, 4 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your ancestors find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that no one passes through, where no one lives. I brought you to a plentiful land to eat its fruits and its good things. But when you enter, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law do not know me. The rulers transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. From Jeremiah to Jesus. By Jesus' time, biblical prophets like Jeremiah have gained something of a reputation, not too far from how many in the church think today of prophets. The prophets of Jesus' day are thought of as those who speak from the edge. They speak for the marginalized, the dispossessed, the powerless. And Jesus, well, he comes to be seen as something of a prophet because he makes it a habit to speak for the marginalized and also minister to them. I mean, you've probably heard the gossip. He touches lepers. He touches a woman with a flow of blood. He has dinner with sinners. He has theological conversations with women and with Samaritans. These are code violations. And he preaches prophetic sermons. The New Testament passage I will soon read comes from the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, it's so familiar and it's so beloved today that we can miss sometimes how highly prophetic it is. Right from the get-go, Jesus pronounces blessings on the poor and those who mourn, on peacemakers, on those who, like Jeremiah, are willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. This is not a sermon calling for people simply to stay in line. This is a sermon that calls for radical obedience. Be salt. Be light. Go the extra mile. Turn the other cheek. Give generously. Love not only your neighbor. Love your enemy. So in this highly prophetic sermon, it's a jolt to suddenly hear Jesus, the code violator, call for radical obedience to the law. Listen to what he has to say. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until earth and heaven pass away, not One letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, 
Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Now don't prophets inspire movements of protest and resistance on behalf of the weak, the poor, the dispossessed? Here Jesus is calling for those who have ears to hear to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees who have so much power and influence and who work so hard to teach the scripture and tradition of the faith. To make sense of this, we need to remember the text on which this prophetic sermon is based. This Sermon on the Mount is an exposition of another sermon, a sermon that Moses preached on a mountain where he gave the law of God embodied in the Ten Commandments. This prophetic sermon, in other words, finds its middle ground in the heart of the center of a sermon that became the center of the Jewish faith. Can it be that a prophetic sermon can also be an establishment sermon? Can it be that a voice from the edge actually speak from the middle? How can that be possible when the establishment of Jesus' day, both Jewish and Roman, eventually reject and abuse Jesus as the establishment once did to Jeremiah? This preacher who calls for obedience to the law is later executed as a criminal. I guess one way to look at this is to look at Jesus' human side. And say that, well, this sermon is preached early in Jesus' ministry. Maybe the human Jesus is naive at this point, thinking that he can move those who believe that they would be contaminated by having anything to do with Samaritans, Gentiles, or lepers. Thinking that he can move those who try to escape responsibility for living in the world by keeping unto themselves thinking that he can move those who have these violent fantasies of taking up arms and overthrowing the Romans. Maybe he's yet to learn that as far as they are concerned, the middle ground is the ground that they are standing on and they won't budge. But then again, maybe there's another way of looking at it. Maybe we should consider the divine side of Jesus. Maybe as far as Jesus is concerned, the middle ground is the ground he is standing on. The ground of the spirit of the law that Moses gave to love God and love neighbor. To love neighbor and love enemy. To love God and neighbor and enemy because God's love is ultimately about building justice and peace and compassion in the world building shalom. In this view, Jesus might be actually calling a world that has itself moved to the edge, back to the middle. We hear an echo from Jeremiah. Notice the first thing that Jeremiah says in speaking for God. What wrong did your ancestors find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves? The establishment of Jesus' day may not realize that they have moved to the edge, but in their pursuit of wealth and power at the expense of justice and compassion they have, they are the older brother, 
believing himself to be on high ground, standing at a distance because he won't enter a house where his disgraced younger brother is welcome. But that house is where his father is. In this light, Isaiah's more hopeful prophecy that valleys will be lifted up and mountains be made low makes some sense. Isaiah is speaking of a rebalancing where justice and compassion are at the center again. So maybe Jesus in this radical prophetic Sermon on the Mount has no interest in abandoning the tradition of the law of the Torah. He wants to call people back to the middle, back to obedience to the theological and worship traditions of the Jews, because that is to draw his fellow Jews back to the law's command to love others as we have been loved. What I'm saying is, is that maybe the prophets do have an edge to them, but maybe it is the middle's edge. Having reconsidered the prophets of old, let's reconsider what we think of social justice today. Social justice, a major theme of the biblical prophets, is a major priority of Christianity. The promotion of social righteousness is one of the six great ends of the Presbyterian Church. There has developed, though, this notion within the larger church that liberals care more about social justice and conservatives care more about the keeping of God's law. As if liberals claim the prophets and conservatives claim Moses. Well, when you look at certain conservatives and liberal Christians, not all but some of them, you can see why these stereotypes have developed. Yes, there are conservative Christians, not all but some of them, who in their commitment to the law of God tend to be rigid and legalistic, black and white in their thinking, and judgmental toward those who look and live outside what they see as socially acceptable. Yes, there are some liberal Christians, not all, but some of them, who in their commitment to social justice so identify with those they see on the margins that they lose their place in the church. They bank on this inherited Christian commitment to justice, but drift away from its source, the theological tradition of the church and the keeping of the disciplines of a body of believers. Yes, there are some conservative Christians, not all, but some of them, who in their commitment to the law of God sometimes forget that we're all sinners saved only by the grace of God, and they see suffering and prosperity as proof positive either of God's judgment or of God's blessing. And yes, there are some liberal Christians, not all, but some of them, who in their commitment to social justice so embrace those on the edges that they abandon the middle, assuming that social power and status and privilege are proof positive of vice, even though history shows that positive change can't happen without enlisting faithful power, status, and privilege. I could go back and forth like this for a long time. What I want to suggest in doing this, though, is that the prophets are misunderstood at both extremes. For conservatives, not all of them, but the legalistic ones, verses from prophetic books that seem to condemn personal behavior and verses which seem to be about choosing the right religion, those verses are embraced, but often neglected are the many passages where prophets directly address abuses of political power, 
the distribution of resources that drive down rather than lift up the poor, and verses that remind us that obedience to God means being ethical in the marketplace and halls of power as well as at home. And then some social justice liberals, not all of them, but some of them, think that they honor the prophets when they go beyond holding the church accountable to abandoning it, as if being an institution is a sin in and of itself. Quoting passages such as this one from Amos, I hate, I despise your feast and solemn assemblies, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a never flowing stream. Or this one from both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. They give in to the hope of being faithful apart from the community of faith and they hang with the church only when it moves to their social stands. I suggest that biblical prophets with their stubborn streak that prevents them from currying favor with anyone, would hold middle ground against both extremes. They are convinced that the middle ground is the ground on which they are standing. So they look to the right and say that when you stop caring about social justice, you stop caring about the law of God. God commands mercy, compassion, and justice. And then they look to the left and they say that when you stop caring about the biblical and theological tradition of the faith that holds the people of God together and keeps us in conversation, then you are actually undermining social justice. Because without the bonds of worship and prayer and fellowship and study, the tradition of justice eventually gets lost and people retreat to their new communities of faith their ideological tribes, and then they engage in us versus them battles that can even become violent. I want to come clean on why I'm talking about prophets this morning. On Tuesday evening, I'll be in Charlotte helping to lead a forum sponsored by Union Presbyterian Seminary's new Center for Social Justice and Reconciliation. The center is going to host this series of forums called Dangerous Dialogue. And in those sessions, they're going to talk about issues that are difficult and because they are difficult, sometimes avoided in church. Gun violence, racism, Mideast peace, affordable housing. But this very first session will be on why we Christians need to talk about those issues and how to go about doing it. I've been preparing for that event, and as I've told you before in previous sermons, I'm not good at keeping my mind going on separate tracks. I think it's a sign of our divided times that before talking about important issues, the first session will largely be on how to do it in a way that will build community rather than dividing it. Sadly, in our country, important conversations about justice quickly become toxic conversations with name-calling, personal attacks, and abuse of truth and logic. I am a bit surprised that I was invited to help lead this conversation. I am a white, male, baby boomer pastor serving a large church that is not all that racially or economically diverse. Basically, I represent white, male, Protestant hegemony. Believe me, hegemony is not a word I use in sermons very often, but it is a word that's used a lot in academia. 
It means leadership or dominance, especially by one social group over others. People who look like me have had the inside lane for most of our country's history. But the reason I think that I've been invited, though, is because of you. Your reputation is out there. You represent a different kind of diversity that is now and more increasingly being taken seriously. This congregation is what is being called a purple congregation. Purple. Because ours is a congregation with members who vote both blue and red. A congregation with members who are not all on the same page as to social and political views. And yet through Sunday school classes and lectures and especially forums, we've been able to talk about difficult issues in respectful ways while continuing to provide a strong, unified witness of compassion addressing real human needs here in Roanoke and beyond. And for some reason, word has gotten out. In fact, I want you to consider something, if word has gotten out, I want you to consider that maybe, maybe we have a special calling. I suggest to you that this congregation is called to a prophetic witness in these divisive times. In the true spirit of biblical prophets, we can be, even in the midst of what is going to be a terribly divisive election year, an example of a faith community where God or where people can find middle ground in loving, worshiping, and serving God together and following Jesus, we can keep the law and serve the church while keeping its spirit of love with a witness of unity in the midst of acknowledged diversity. You know that calling has always been ours, even if it has special clarity today. Because it's the call to bear the name of Jesus Christ. Bear the name of the one who was the law-made flesh, the one whose words and actions revealed the mind and heart of God, a mind and heart that is there for rich and poor, powerful and weak, Jew, Christian, Gentile, a heart that calls people to come together and worship and study and fellowship, but also calls them to come together to bear witness to the world primarily through deeds of compassion and working for justice. I wish I had thought to pick on Christ the solid rock I stand as our last hymn instead of our middle one because Jesus is that middle ground we must not surrender. We don't avoid talking and praying about the real issues that face our nation and our communities and families and often divide them. But we do so as those who stand and pray together. We do so as those who together make an affirmation of faith on Sundays and pray together the prayer our Lord taught us to pray. On Christ the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.